Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm very glad you're with us today. When I began to do afterlife research, and that's going on 50 years ago now, my first task was to convince myself that there really is an afterlife. So I read hundreds of communications from people that we used to think were dead, all of which were received in the first few decades of the 20th century in southern England and in the eastern United States as well. And what got me was the fact that all these people really were in the same place. It was a gigantic place, very complex. It had a lot going on, but they all were experiencing the same physics, the same process, the same pastimes, the same geography and vegetation, everything. Everything was the same. It was like dropping. If you found a new planet, you might drop, you know, 50 people in different spots all over that planet and have them report back. Well, this was like dropping a whole lot of people into different spots on some alien planet and having them find that while there were many cultures on that planet, all the scientific aspects are the same everywhere. And that was in the 1970s. I had started out as a really big skeptic because after all, if there's an afterlife, then where the heck is it? But the fact that all these people who claimed to be in the afterlife were talking about all the same details when they were not collaborating convinced me that there had to be one. So then I needed to know how an afterlife was possible. And figuring out the scientific aspects of the afterlife was what took me another 40 years. By the first decade of the 21st century, I'd worked out quite a bit on my own, and having good quantum physics for dummies books arrive on the scene about then actually helped me to get the rest of it pretty much figured out. I think it's very hard to figure out reality from inside this material illusion because the illusion is just so strong, and our guest today is going to talk about that, I think. That fact led inexorably to the certainty that when you are outside and you're looking in and you have the proper scientific information, you really can see reality as what it is. And reality has to be an artifact of the mind. Just as I told you here three weeks ago and as Craig Hogan also told us two weeks ago when he talked about his new book that's called There is Nothing But Mind and Experiences. Researchers into the afterlife have figured it out. The base of reality actually is what you and I experience in a very limited way as human consciousness. So what physicist Max Planck said a century ago uh, about the fact that we can't get behind consciousness turns out to have been exactly right. And there is one amazing scientist who has been helping today's open-minded researchers come to the same conclusion from a scientific perspective. He's the extraordinary Dr. Bernardo Kastrup, and he's with us today for the fourth time. Bernardo is an open-minded traditional scientist whose work has led to the same conclusions that Craig and I have reached completely independently of him. And that boggles me, I have to say, but I have learned so much from Bernardo. He has a Ph.D. in computer engineering, including artificial intelligence, and a second Ph.D. in the philosophy of mind and ontology. If you're not familiar with the term, ontology is the study of existence. This second Ph.D. kind of pigeonholes Bernardo a little bit as a philosopher. 
But in method and disposition, he remains a traditional scientist. He has worked as a scientist in some of the world's foremost research laboratories, including the European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN. And he's written lots of academic papers and books on science and on philosophy. He's a regular contributor to our beloved Scientific American, and that's, of course, where I found him. This is Bernardo's fourth appearance on Seek Reality, and he continues to figure out what we also are working out here, which is the actual nature of reality. What the heck is going on? Bernardo is a brilliant thinker. He's very well read, and his command of theories about consciousness and the nature of reality is second to none. He boggles me. He also understands the lingo. It turns out there's a whole separate subset of words that are used. Every time I read him, I'm reminded that there is a real vocabulary to what he does that is not familiar to us muggles at all. But he'll help us with that. He's a leader in what he calls the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, for example. And that's the correct term for the notion that reality is essentially mental. So this is going to be fun. Welcome, Bernardo. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks for having me again, uh, Roberto. It's a pleasure. It's certainly a pleasure for us, too. And I just want to remind people there are three earlier interviews with Bernardo, and there's other material that I, I hope you will take time to listen to because he explains these things so much better than I ever could. So, all right, let's talk for a little bit about this modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism. Is there really a renewed interest in determining whether reality is essentially mental? Is that real? I think it is. I think we've been dragged screaming and kicking uh, towards <laughs> right. uh, the, the need to at least contemplate that possibility because there are many lines, not only of evidence, but of reasoning that seem to be pointing in that direction. So we cannot uh, leave that stone unturned. And uh, it's my position that once we turn that stone, we will look no further. Do you really think that's true? Are there that many people who are traditional physicists, scientists of various stripes, who are at the point of desperation? I mean, I've seen it coming in Scientific American, but that's only, you know, very limited. Um, I see it much more on your website, actually, where you're interacting with these people. You have so much patience. I don't know how you can have so much patience with these, these folks. But you've I seen it pro progressing. Yes, and uh, even experimentally, um, the first experimental indications that we would be forced to comp contemplate this possibility that the world that is really out there is not constituted of objects with defined properties and sizes and forms, but it's something else uh, of a mental nature. The first indications were in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, with the work of physicists like um, uh, the French team of, um, his name escapes me right now. Um, um, but since then, um, we've argued, well, not me in particular, but physicists have argued that those experiments had a lot of loopholes uh, because the conclusion was so counterintuitive that it, it, it <laughs> right. couldn't be true, right? So we, we, we've we redone that experiment uh, a couple of dozen times since then 
culminating to an experiment done here in the Netherlands in 2015, in which all the loopholes were closed. And then another one in 2018, in which loopholes that hadn't even been considered before <laughs> were also closed and the results were consistent and the same. So now we are at a, at a, at a place where you know, a lot of money and research effort has been invested in these experiments that can only show that uh, we are being dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> towards wow. this conclusion because we thought it was worthwhile enough to close a nearly inconceivable loophole, so implausible, but we felt the need to experimentally uh, show that uh, those loopholes are closed and the conclusions are still the same. Um, so the state of play now is you either believe that uh, whatever is out there, it is of a mental nature, it's not determinate, or you believe that there are gazillions of physical universes being oh, born oh, every fraction oh, of a femtosecond. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and you take your pick about which one is more or less plausible. I have uh, absolute clarity regarding my pick. Yes, yeah. Occam's razor says the simplest explanation is probably the right one, and I think... I think you're right about that. They, they, they make a strange argument. They say that um, if you use Occam's razor correctly, uh, then their option is more parsimonious because they don't require anything more than what is written in the mathematical equations. So their notion of, of parsimony is entirely abstract. If you need only one equation instead of 10, then that's more parsimonious, even if the conclusion or the implication is that you have gazillions of physical universes being born every fra fraction of a femtosecond. Now, that's a very <laughs> weird way yes. uh, to interpret parsimony, but yes. uh, okay. <laughs> well, whatever floats their boat. But that's because physicists are so hung up on math. That's been their, their sort of hobby horse for so long. I've talked with physicists, you know, at the sidelines of conventions and so on, who have said, don't let them kid you. You can make the math say whatever you want it to say, which I found shocking, but that's what they said. I think what we've lost from sight is that um, the math is a description. All yes. of our equations are, are descriptions of reality, and the reality being described are the experiences on the screen of perception. Uh, even if we use uh, uh, instrumentation to enhance our perceptions, like telescopes or microscopes or uh, oscilloscopes, <laughs> whatever, um, they are only useful insofar as we perceive the instrument's outputs. So yes. physics is about describing the reality of perception, which is a mental reality by definition. The problem happens when we mistake reality for its description. It comes to a point where it, we have come to a point in the 19th century, uh, maybe even earlier, uh, where we said, OK, the only thing that exists are the descriptions. The only thing oh, that exists shit. is the math, not oh. the territory that we oh. describe with the map. Uh, and now we say that uh, uh, perceptions are derivative, that they are conjured up by our brains inside our heads. And the only thing that exists are the descriptions, the mathematical equations, mass, charge, momentum, frequency, amplitude, and so forth. I mean, this, this people went as far, like physicist, um, uh, I forgot his name, um, he's a... Um, Scandinavian physicist working in the in the U.S. He he published a book called Our Mathematical Universe. Max Tegmark. Oh, and, okay. Uh, Tegmark wow. says explicitly uh, that all that exists are abstract quantities as described in mathematical equations. Everything else is, and that's his term, quote, baggage, 
everything else is baggage. Matter, your experience, your perceptions, it's all baggage. So he's all coming the- in through the back door. Because if if that's all baggage, then consciousness is all there is. And he's trying to describe consciousness in a fake way. But you can't throw away what looks like an objective reality and still claim there is one. You would you would think that that conclusion would be forced on him by very trivial reasoning, yeah. but um, he yeah. is on the record saying that consciousness is the fifth state of matter. Oh, so, <laughs> so <laughs> I mean we uh, we are lost in a forest of abstraction of our own making. We got yes. ourselves all tied up in conceptual abstractions, and we can't see past that anymore. We've replaced the territory with a map. Now we say the map is all that exists, the equations, the oh. descriptions are all that exists, and everything else we can't explain because we don't know how the territory can arise from the map. Duh, nobody can know that, yeah, because <laughs> right. it doesn't make any sense. Right. And then I say, but one day we will solve that <laughs> riddle and we will figure yes. out how the territory is spitted out from the map. Okay, good luck with that. <laughs> well, David, the hard problem, of course, is uh, how does consciousness arise from matter, which is, of course, bass backwards, and and uh, they can't make that make any sense. So they're going around this other way and coming up with another hard problem that makes no sense. Yeah, These are, it, don't you find this shocking? The fact that, because reading your website, I recommend everybody go to bernardocastrop.com every time you have a moment and just enjoy. There are videos there, there are articles there, and he is so entertaining. If you want to know the truth, get it in a very enjoyable way, and Bernardo can do that for you. But we know from quantum field theory that particles are just metaphors for field excitations. Particles are just metaphors for field excitations. I don't know where that came from. But now scientific theory includes metaphors even, apparently. All scientific theories are metaphors. And and proper scientists will acknowledge that to you. Really? Yeah. Science is not in the business of telling you what the world is. Science is in the business of telling you how the world behaves and predicting that behavior. And to make those predictions, we use these handy metaphors. So... Particles, uh, if you are a serious scientist who know what you are doing, you will understand that when we talk about particles, what we mean is the following. The world behaves as though it were made of particles. That doesn't mean that it is made of particles because science cannot tell that. Science can only tell you if the metaphor allows you to make accurate predictions. And if it allows you to do that, then it's a good metaphor that we incorporate in our theories. But we lose sight from that, and we start thinking that if you predict the behavior of something correctly, then you know what it is. Of course you don't. Telling you how things work doesn't tell you what things are. Serious scientists who are familiar with the philosophy of science and the history of science and, and the, 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 the boundaries of the scientific method, method will concur with this. This is not a polemical point at all. The problem is ignorance. A lot of people are just ignorant of this and, and they run with a fairy tale. Oh, my word. That is so profound. I, I think it's very upsetting, actually, because we do trust science to be in some way handling an objective search for the truth. And what you're saying is that's just not true at all. That's well, not what well, they're doing. It's, it's an objective search for the truth of behavior, not the truth of essence. Oh. 
So okay. these are different things. I mean, okay. science is correct the moment it makes correct predictions. And if it does that, then we can build technology around those predictions. And technology has been spectacularly successful, which shows that science, to a large extent, is objectively correct in its behavior predictions. So, But to say that things behave as though there were fields, as though there were yeah. particles, uh, okay. is one thing. But to say that things are fields and yeah. particles is replacing reality with an abstraction. And that's where the spokespeople of science go terribly wrong. These spokespeople of science often are not scientists. They are not practicing scientists. They just talk about science and they go on TV and they made a living out <laughs> of that and they made an image out of right. that. Right. But uh, often they don't know, frankly, often they don't, they don't know the first thing about what they're talking about. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to go on record saying this. <laughs> saying that, wow, that is fairly blunt. But I think, all right. So what you're saying is, when we here are trying to 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 reason from what we know about is true uh, is true about the afterlife, and we're trying to use science to establish what reality actually is, you're saying we can't get much help from science because they're on their own trip. They're not even dealing with. Anything well, that's an objective reality. Don't, don't get me wrong. I do think they are doing something very important, very informative that we should absolutely use. We neglect that at our own peril. Um, and, and it's being done correctly by the majority of scientists. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that science is valueless. It has value. Uh, it allows us to predict the behavior of nature, which has allowed us to build technology and improve our lives tremendously in some aspects, not in all, not in some very important ones, but in, in, in many aspects. I don't deny that. I, I am entirely pro-science. I think science has been a tremendous development in human history, something we have to be in awe of and very thankful for. What I don't like, and I think is counterproductive, are people who pretend that science is something other than what it actually is and make a career out of that. That, yes. I think, is damaging to us because it okay. just gets us confused. And it's damaging to science because it puts on the shoulders of science uh, the responsibility for making certain determinations that the scientific method simply was not made yes. to determine. Okay. And, and, and that's a tragedy for science. And it's a tragedy for our culture because the, the result is confusion. Yes, and I think they've reached the practical edge, and we're watching them very closely doing that, the practical edge of what the scientific method can produce and of what uh, the use of math can produce, and that that is consciousness. They, they can't even get a, ha a handle on what it is or how it's produced or whether it's produced or where it comes from or any of that. Um, and that's an area where you're really expert. And I, so you have taught me so much about consciousness. I have to just say I appreciate appreciate your work in that field. But before we bid goodbye to materialism, I'd love to just briefly talk about your book, which is called – by the way, there are a ton of books. You've written how many books now? I've written ten. Uh, eight are published. Two are in production. Wow. Okay. Well, this one is called – I love the title – Why Materialism is Baloney. How true skeptics know there is no death and fathom answers to light, the universe, and everything. What a great title. Um, baloney is a very good word to have in a scientific book, I think, <laughs> based on what we've just <laughs> talked about. This came out actually six years ago. I guess I didn't realize how old it was, but this is a wonderful book. And I'm, 
could, could you just briefly help us understand a, more about what you're because true skeptics are being persuaded by your book apparently about major things that one don't even seem to be scientific such as how do you know that there is no death how how can better understanding materialism help us understand that there is no death I think the important and relevant question is not whether there is or there isn't death. Uh, the important question is, do we have any good reason to think that there is death in the sense of the end of consciousness? Okay. That is the important okay. question. And I okay. think we have no good reason whatsoever <laughs> to construe from the decomposition of the body that consciousness as, as, as a substrate of nature uh, ceases to exist. I think there is no good reason for that, and that's what motivated uh, the subtitle of the book. I just love it. Well, one of the things you taught me, really, is is a better understanding of the nature of time. We take time so much for granted as if it were a basic truth, but as you point out, it, it really isn't. Talk about time just for a moment, and for anyone who hasn't heard your, your previous interview on this. If you want to see uh, the smartest people on the planet suddenly go very confused and start stuttering, <laughs> okay. you ask them, what exactly is time? Because they will give you definitions that are circular. Like, time is uh, the difference between two instants. Yeah, instants is another word for time. Uh -huh. Or the, the period that uh, uh, elapses between two events. Yeah, that, that's just another word for time. So we, we can't even define time, even though we all yeah. have a shared intuition about time. Um, and time is a contentious issue, um, has always been contentious in, in philosophy. There are many theories of time. In the Western tradition, you have people like Immanuel Kant and, and Arthur Schopenhauer, who, who I wrote a book about. Uh -huh. uh, and, and they say, well, time is a cognitive construct. It's the way we have as living organisms to make sense of the information available to us. We sort of stretch that information out in time so we can make sense of its causal relationships and, and, and get a better grip uh, uh, on our actions in the world so we, we stand a better chance of survival. But because that's a cognitive construct, it's not objective, it's not out there, yet we are locked into it. We cannot think in terms that are not temporal because yes. that's how our entire cognitive apparatus works. Um, and then you would say, well, but that's just philosophy, it's just speculation, right? Well, no, not even in physics, uh, time is very contentious. There are physicists <laughs> like uh, Julian Barbour who say time doesn't exist at all. Uh, and he showed that he could write every significant equation in physics without the letter T that stands for time. Uh, you can eliminate time from, from physics and physics would still work out just fine. There are other people wow. uh, like um, uh, Lee Smolin from the Perimeter Institute, one of the top organizations uh, doing leading-edge physics in the world today. And he says, time is the only thing that exists. Space is an illusion. <laughs> time is the only dimension. <laughs> and he has equally compelling arguments. And then you have other people, like uh, um, people doing loop quantum gravity, which is you know, the new frontier in physics, people like Carlo Rovelli, uh, who say that, well, time exists, but it's not fundamental. It's not, it's not the scaffolding of reality. Time itself is created by microscopic level quantum processes. So you see, science is all over the place oh. when it comes to time. Yeah. And that's the state of our culture and our knowledge today. We don't have a clue what time is. <laughs> wow. The, what I came to think is that 
because and you were the one who really helped me to understand we don't feel a passage of time we have in our mind a past which we think we you know that we think that's real but we can't go to it it's not real in that sense and we have a future which is another thing we can't experience we've only got that moment i think you had in one of your articles you had us sitting by the edge of the car the road in our car we couldn't look at the past or the or the future even on that road and it seems to me that therefore in a way if anything exists it always exists and consciousness being outside of time always exists. I mean, a, hum- a, a human consciousness, which we know objectively, be, we researchers in the afterlife know that, that there, we aren't even really affected by death. It, it's, it's so immaterial and our minds are eternal. But I think you can arrive at that just from the, the common sense way you looked at time in that article. Yeah, I think we have to, to get our intuitions Clearly, to make them explicit and check, is this coherent? Does this make sense, the narrative we are telling ourselves about what time is? And one of the foundations for talking about time is this idea that we perceive or feel or in some way consciously register the flow of time. And I think that's an illusion. Um, it's, it's It's a wrong conceptualization of the actual experience. We never experience anything flowing at all. Um, uh, the past are memories that are experienced now. The future are expectations that are experienced now. And there has never been a point in your life in which the future uh, was anything other than expectations yes. experienced in the now. Or the past, anything other than memories experienced in the now. So you, all you ever have is, is the now. But the now is a landscape. You can look forward to expectations. You can look back to memories like, like the person sitting on the side of the road. Um, uh, and, and that's all we have. As a matter of fact, if you are consistent about the idea of time travel, you will realize that we may be time traveling all the time. Because <laughs> oh, yes. if, you, if you truly travel back in time, truly, then you will go back to a point in which your memories were different, shorter, uh, and your expectations were different as well. Uh, and everything would feel as though you didn't travel at all because you just arrive, you land at that point oh. in the landscape in yep. which the future is ahead and the past is behind. And yep. you wouldn't have a clue. I mean, we can be zigzagging in time a million oh. times a second. And we would oh. be none the wiser. By the way, I go <laughs> further. I'll go further. We can be hip hopping from individual identity to individual identity a million times a second. And we would be none the wiser. Uh, Maybe the same consciousness is oscillating between you and me right now. But every time it's in me, it has the coherent memories of Bernardo. Every time it's in you, it has the coherent memories of Roberta. And we would be none the wiser. I mean, we may be be playing chess against ourselves, uh, Roberta. It's just that we walk from one side of the board to to the other. And every time we walk to the other side, we uh, acquire the memories of that side and we lose the memories of the other side. So we, you know, if we were doing that, we would be sure that there are seven and a half billion people in the world. <laughs> and yes. there may not be. <laughs> it may be all one person who's very, very busy. Oh, or one God. consciousness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that really blows my mind. That's, I love it when you do that. Okay, well, that's good. Now, the, I found an, a, a paper, I didn't find the paper, I found the abstract, that something you wrote in the Journal of Consciousness Studies two years ago, almost three now, that's titled The Universe in Consciousness. 
Um, I, I'm sure you remember it. And I thought that the abstract summed up very well how people coming from the, a totally different direction are viewing consciousness, too. So I wonder if we can talk about that just briefly. Sure. Um, you said uh, the, the abstract is, I propose an idealist ontology that makes sense of reality in a more parsimonious, it's true, and empirically rigorous manner than mainstream physicalism. And you come up with a series of, of you could just tell us quickly what they are afterwards. Bottom-up panpsychism, cosmopsychism. These people are crazy with all these words. The proposed ontology also offers more expl explanatory power than these three alternatives in that it does not fall prey to the hard problem of consciousness, which everybody is, you know, where does it come from? They're trying to find it in the brain and how it's generated there, which is nonsense. The hard problem, the combination problem, or the decombination problem, Respectively, it could be summarized as follows. There is only cosmic consciousness. We, as well as all other living organisms, are but disassociated altars of cosmic consciousness, surrounded by its thoughts, the trees around you, and so on. The inanimate world we see around us is the extrinsic appearance of those thoughts. The living organisms we share the world with are the extrinsic appearance of other dissociated altars. I, I read that, and it is exactly what I have come to, to believe is true from a totally different perspective i just love it so so let's let's talk about this a little bit first we know what physicalism is is believing everything is physical but what is bottom-up panpsychism what is that <laughs> it's the idea that um, matter exists it has the structure that uh, it appears to have on the screen of perception in other words it's made up of little particles that come yeah, together to form atoms molecules and so on uh, but that uh, those little particles of matter, uh, they have consciousness as one of their fundamental properties. Okay. In other words, consciousness is not created by a certain arrangement of particles in our brain. Consciousness is there from the beginning. Every okay. electron is conscious. Um, but it says that consciousness is a property of matter and matter has a certain structure independent of consciousness. Um, and the problem they have then, I mean, for one, this doesn't explain anything. It just avoids right. the explanation by That's saying, right. well, uh, consciousness is fundamental. It is a matter. I don't need to explain it anymore. Um, That's one problem. The other problem, yes. which is more serious, arguably, is that there is no explicit and coherent way to, to argue that uh, independent and separate subjectivities, like the subjectivity of one electron uh, inside your brain, somehow can combine to form the compound subjectivity that we identify with. In other words, my inner life doesn't seem to be composed of gazillions of little uh, electron yes. uh, subjectivities. Yes. And there is no coherent way to argue how this composition or this combination could happen. Uh, so the conclusion is, and this has been argued technically in philosophy, is that it's an incoherent uh, notion. But that's what bottom-up panpsychism tries to do. It tries to regard consciousness as an extra property of matter alongside mass, charge, momentum, spin, and all the other oh, things. Oh, how sad. <laughs> oh, gee. And they tie themselves up in knots about that. Well, what about cosmopsychism? What's that? There are two variations. Um, one I subscribe to, the other one I think is just luggage from you know, our, our terrible uh, history of uh, bad thinking around these issues. 
Um, one of them you could call idealist cosmopsychism, and it's just a, a modern attempt attempt to give a modern name to a philosophical position that, that has existed uh, for even a couple of thousand years. It just says that the universe uh, is consciousness, and it yes. appears to us in the form of matter. That's idealist cosmopsychism. Now there is another formulation of cosmopsychism, who also ha which also has universal consciousness, but they 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 formulate it differently. They say the universe isn't consciousness, the universe is conscious. So there is something about the universe that is not consciousness, and that something bears consciousness as a property of it. Now, oh. I don't subscribe to that. I no, think no. that's uh, unnecessary baggage coming from, yes. from physicalism. Yes. Well, that seems to be the problem when they are, because as you say, they are straining to make this step, but it's very hard for them to abandon the notion of solid stuff for some reason, of, of matter in, in some way that is, of, that is of value when indeed, you know, they've got to take that step sooner or later. It seems to me that it solves a lot of problems if you think of consciousness as primary and preexistent. Um, Absolutely. Um, among other things, I mean, it just makes it simple. Among other things, they're worried about, of course, how it's generated in the brain. Well, it's not. It, the brain is just receiving it and using it. But also, what, what they can't find what causes life either. Um, and if, if life, if, the, if what we think of as life is just a primary property of this consciousness, which is all that really exists, that solves our problem too. There is a way that it gets turned on or turned off, or maybe everything is alive. I don't know. But it seems to me that they just make it so much harder when they put matter into any, everything. It, it, these are, I mean, we carry a lot of cultural baggage. I mean, we are, right. we are not disconnected from history. What we are living today is a narrative that has been conjured up when science was fighting the church, uh, fighting to have some freedom uh, to exist yes. as a discipline of human knowledge. Uh, and the, the most straightforward way to do that is to say, well, fine, there is mind and mind uh, is to the church. The church deals with mind. But there is something el uh, else as well. There is this thing, matter, which yep. has nothing to do with mind. And that's our domain, Mr. Mr. Uh, Priest. Yes, uh, that's, what that's we exactly what do. happened. You're right. So, yeah, there was okay. a political motivation to do that, which we inherited. And now we think that it's real. Now, it, it, the reason I'm saying that is that it's so easy to fall into the trap of dualism. And this is not a criticism to you, but you just did it when you said uh, the brain doesn't generate consciousness. It just receives, receives and uses it. There you go. We are talking about the brain as if it were something outside and independent of consciousness that <laughs> right. somehow That's receives right. it. That's how right. we think. Right. Exactly. Yeah, we're trying to grow, but it's very hard. You're absolutely right. Physicalism has permeated even our language, our ways of thinking. Yeah. So you asked in the beginning, um, how, 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 how do you react to all this absurdity around you? Well, oftentimes with irritation, um, <laughs> but occasionally with compassion. And yeah. for instance, right now, uh, uh, you just reminded me of how easily it is, even for people who have a better understanding, to fall into that trap. So and th that sort of triggers my compassion, like, okay, uh, it is very difficult. I have been privileged in some way uh, to, to have parachuted in a mental space where things are clear, but I yes. might as well just have been in, in their shoes. <laughs> for all okay, I know. well, people listening want to know 
What's the relationship then between mind and the brain? Okay, can you explain that, how you see that? Because you're absolutely right. It, it, I've just made it unnecessarily complicated, but they, they're used to thinking that somehow their consciousness has some relationship to their, to their brain. How would you describe it? Well, of course, there is a, there is a very, very tight relationship. It's empirically undeniable. Um, but I think the relationship is the following. The brain is the image of a certain type of process in consciousness. It's what that process looks like from a perspective, just in the same way that um, uh, atmospheric electric discharge looks like lightning from our perspective. It's the image of the process. It's, it's not the cause. It's not the substrate. It's what the process looks like from a certain point of view. Uh, and that's why it correlates with the process. It's the image of it. Of course it correlates with it. The image of the process correlates with the process because it is the image of it. It's what the process looks like uh, from a certain perspective. And that explains all uh, the correlations without our having to postulate anything that is fundamentally different than consciousness. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Okay. Well, all right. So then the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is if the, we, we, this does not fall prey to the hard problem of consciousness, which we just talked about, but you talk about the combination problem or the decombination problem. What are those? So the combination problem I just talked about is how do you make sense of this postulated idea that little micro subjectivities, you know, the inner life of a little electron combines with the inner life of another electron and then those with another uh, until it forms your inner life. Yeah. Um, it's incoherent and that's called the combination problem. How does uh -huh. fundamentally separate consciousness combines? And because it's incoherent, then we know that we cannot start from fundamentally separate consciousness. Okay. The, other side, the, the other side of the coin of this problem is, okay, to not start from fundamentally separate consciousnesses, I can only start from one inseparable, unified, holistic, universal consciousness. Fine, then I don't face the combination problem. But now I have to, to account for the fact that you and I seem to have separate conscious in our lives. I can't read your thoughts, at least ordinarily, and you can't read, my, can't read mine. I don't uh -huh. know what's going on in another galaxy or even on, on the moon. So I am, I'm not omniscient. And, and if I am in one universal consciousness, why am I not omniscient and you, and you as well? Why are the two of us not one conscious entity with unified inner life? So that's the decomposition problem. How do you explain how one universal consciousness can seemingly become many? Now, uh, there are some conceptual challenges around this, but unlike the hard problem of consciousness and unlike the combination problem, for the decomposition problem, we have empirical evidence that it happens. Whether we understand it or not is a different question, but it does happen. People have a condition called dissociative identity disorder in which one mind seemingly fragments itself into dissociated complexes with particular memories, particular uh, uh, um, personality traits, particular dispositions that are not available to the other dissociated complexes of that one mind. We even know that patients with a dissociative identity disorder or DID, uh, many of them when they dream, the different outer personalities, the dissociated complexes in the dream, experience the dream from different points of view. And oh recall, my goodness. Yeah, and they recall the same dream from each particular perspective. 
And, and we know that this is a study done by a psychologist from Harvard University uh, already back in the 90s. I mean, DID today is empirically proven. We, we, no, we now have neuroimaging results. We, we, we know that it happens. It's identifiable objectively with a brain scanner or even EEG or MEG. Um, so we know that decomposition happens. Whether we can conceptually wrap our minds around it or not is secondary. We know it does happen. And that's what distinguishes idealism from the other two alternatives, while the other guys are fighting for whether their conceptual inventions are plausible at all. The idealist can just point at scientific research and say, that happens. I don't, need even, I don't even need to understand it or account for it explicitly to you because I can show you that it happens. And that, that's, that's a privileged position to be in. I would say because if you're if you're you're one of the folks who somehow is muddling um, uh, matter with consciousness uh, as I just did, then at some point you come to a place where you can't explain it because it's artificial; it doesn't make sense. But what you're saying is you only look at what is real, and once you understand that that does happen, that is real. And you combine it with what we already, you already know about consciousness. Eventually, that will make sense. We just don't understand it yet. For example, um, what those we used to think were dead tell us consistently is that when we're in these bodies, we have very limited access to our eternal minds, uh, which are much, much. I, I think it may be only twenty percent, uh, if we could talk in percentages of what we are able to think and experience when we're outside our bodies. That's anecdotal, but. The, but the, the 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 fact that there is this easy selective amnesia that happens to all of us when we just have this experience of of thinking we are in a body that's information and it's true information it actually happens although we can't yet explain how or why exactly so i i think that there is there's meaningful information in what we've learned from the dead about all of this but you're going in a totally different direction and coming to the totally the same, largely the same place we are, which is thrilling to me because it tells me we are all going to be able eventually to get to that place. And and I think that's essential because the scientists are at such a dead end. And I'm so sorry. You've made me feel even more sorry for them than I, than I have been before, that they're so desperate to keep some shred of solidity if you will in in what what uh is is true is true is real and it isn't there there's none of that there i think it it's the nature of of mind to to deceive itself i i like to talk about it as mind's prime directive and it needs to deceive itself because if it didn't there would be nothing right um, that's true it, it, it's an instinctive impulse uh, to deceive itself uh, at all levels, not only the cultural or the conceptual level, but also at in very instinctive uh, primordial levels. Um, we can be very critical um, of scientists. Um, I, I'm not really critical of true scientists. I am very critical of uh, pseudo-philosophers who think yes. that science replaces okay. philosophy. Yeah. The spokespeople, the, the militant wing of, of science, the people who are uh, who have um, self-identified as the spokespeople of science, they they gave themselves this name and, and they made an image around it. The oh, true scientists yeah. are doing very hard work that's very important for us all. They are they are finding out a way to stop this 
terrible plague that's affecting us all and that has taken so many loved ones uh, from us it's scientists in the front line of that they they are exposing themselves to to dangerous pathogens to do that research for our benefit so at the same time that i am critical of these pseudo philosophers who dress in the gown of science as if they were true scientists uh, i take my hat off for the true scientists that are doing the hard work uh, uh, for our benefit and at the same time we are we are all humans. Uh, we are all, you know, m- mental complexes. And, and, and as that, I think we all have the proclivity, the prime directive of deceiving themselves. Scientists can deceive themso- themselves in certain ways, but other people deceive themselves in other ways. And yes, uh, you see, yes, we, right. we, we, might, we might see through what scientists, where science is, scientists or pseudoscientists are going wrong, but often we don't see through where we are <laughs> going wrong ourselves. Which so, is uh, right. It's right. Yeah. right. It's good to talk about these things because other people will point out, you know, the, the glitches in our own thinking. You're absolutely right. And being open-minded is the most important talent and skill there is. Be- Not so open-minded the- that your mind falls out, but open-minded <laughs> enough so that so that you could, could see a different perspective without holding to the one you had. I, that's really? one challenge. To, to be open-minded is one challenge. It's, it's very challenging to truly be open-minded, as you said, without letting your brain sort of squirt <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> but another challenge is is to really peel the layers of self-deception in ourselves. And they can express yeah. them. These layers express themselves in a multitude of ways. One of them is, oh, there is matter outside mind. Another way is... Um, I would never do what that person did. That's another way of of, yeah. of self deception judgment, all forms of judgment. Oh, judgment, so yes. It's, it's very, very difficult to peel off the layers, uh, not the least for the fact that if you really succeeded in peeling off all the layers, there would be nothing left, only a, a, an empty field of subjectivities, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which would yes. still be something. It's everything that yeah. actually exists, uh, ultimately, <laughs> uh, but it seems a bit, a bit too vacuous and tenuous for our modern taste. I am so sorry we've come to the end of our time because I could talk to you for hours. I'm going to say it's too bad. Uh, Bernardo is in the Netherlands. He is Dutch and therefore, is that what you call yourself Dutch? Is that is that still valid or is that a quaint term? It, it's, it's, the, it's the best thing that you can say about me. I mean, I can I can be Portuguese too and Danish. Oh. I have a, I'm a mess, but uh, Dutch yeah. is my passport. Oh, well, I think that's wonderful. But um, the, Understand everyone, Dr. Bernardo Castro's second PhD defense is something you must please listen to if you haven't heard it already. It was uploaded to YouTube on April 30th, 2019. And if you haven't seen and enjoyed it, please do that as soon as you have the time. Google his name and second PhD defense and it comes right up. His website is bernardocastrop.com and it is a joyous place to be if you're trying to learn because he's got all kinds of YouTubes. He's got interesting articles. I spent a good part of today there (laughs) getting ready and just every time I go there. I love it. So I urge you to go there again when you have a little time and browse and just watch the short YouTubes and learn so much. Everything he talks about on Seek Reality, you can learn so much more about there than you can in the few minutes we spend together. And as I say, it's entertaining. As you can see, he's an enjoyable person just to know. Um, I we're going to do this again in six months. We, we're sort of doing this every six months. I hope you don't. I hope you're game still, Bernardo. To do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm game. I'm game. 
<laughs> okay, because um, this is this is an area where there's a lot of development happening, and whatever there is that's happening, Bernardo's going to be able to tell us about it, and again, in such a wonderful way. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, thanks, uh, thanks, Roberto, Roberto, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Everyone, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, and I'm really glad you were here. This has been so much fun. I love this. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began, and you never will end. And when you fully grasp what that really means, it changes everything in your life for the better. Next week, we have a, another interesting guest. His name is Master Ming Kong Gu, and he is a Qigong master. I first came across Qigong, I can't say it with the inflections that I should have, about 30 years ago while I was first trying to figure out the powers of our minds. Qigong is a is a way to use our minds that goes back in China for 5,000 years. And it looked to me to be the ultimate use of our minds. I've watched videos of Chinese practitioners performing surgery under Qigong anesthesia alone. I've seen them do the actual surgery by Qigong alone using purely the powers of their minds. It was unbelievable and amazing. Master Mi Ming Tong Gu has established wisdom healing Qigong in North America. Um, it, this is something, and he actually does it here. You you can go, and if you have a problem, he can help you cure it. Um, I've been fascinated by what this, this Qigong is for decades, and this is going to be my first opportunity to actually talk with an expert practitioner. So I hope you'll be with us next week. And this week, we've once again been enjoying listening to the wonderful Dutch scientist and polymath, Dr. Bernardo Castro. He's been here with us for the fourth time. He's going to come, he promises, every six months and will hold him to that because I think one day that he is going to get the Nobel Prize in Physics for a Consciousness Theory of Everything and he's not even a can a non-physicist get the Physics Prize? I'm just wondering but we may soon find out he is the one who is going to figure out I believe how consciousness actually works, what it actually does and what's underlying everything. He's in very powerful company because this is something of course that Dr. Max Planck told us about, about a century ago he's the father of quantum mechanics and it's a natural outgrowth of that science but it is going to take someone with the patience and the kindness and the common sense and just just the simple ability to put things together of, of Bernardo Castro to actually make this happen. He's going to outlast it all and he's going to do it. And frankly, I'm just, I love hearing what he has to say. I love going to his website. And we want to support him here in this work all that we can because he is pursuing the genuine object, objective truth about reality. If we're going to seek reality, he's the one who's going to take us there. Now, as you know, I have a variety of nonfiction books. I have no time to, to state them now. But if you want to talk about anything at all, my books or just a question you have or your cat died, I, hear, I get all kinds of emails from people. You can always contact me through the green contact block on robertagrimes.com. And I answer emails. It can take a week now, I warn you. I used to say I'll send, do it the same day or I'll send flowers if you don't hear from me. But I can't, I can't say that anymore. It takes too much time. There are too many people. But it's very important to me to hear from you if you want to talk to me. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Meanwhile, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy, please make the most of this coming week in our one reality, one reality, knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you, most of all in the universe, you are infinitely loved. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.